You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Archaeology Podcast. What are we? The CRM Archaeology Podcast. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, this is Stephen from Calgary. Welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Joining me today are, is Doug in Scotland. Is that right? Scotland? Yep, yep. That's where I'm at. Hi, everyone. And uh, our special guest, uh, Bill Otter. Otter. I, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. <laughs> Octor. Okay, I, I couldn't. I couldn't tell if that if like you, you still had the. Uh, um, yeah, that's the full. The bottle stop full, in there. The full throated thing. Yeah. Uh, Octor. <laughs> Go full German. Right on. Uh, Chris uh, Webster cannot be joining us. He's at a conference, and I have no idea where Bill is. Sonia also could not be here. So um, I was given the reins of this show at the last second, um, basically yesterday, and. Uh, was kind of hard pressed to come up with the topic on such short notice. So I contacted Bill and brought him on and we kind of have a concept show for you. Um, part of this is coming from uh, th- this past week, Bill has been tweeting a lot on uh, um, basically he's, he's starting to play a, a role-playing game, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, so what we've done is for our show notes, we came up with a random encounter table and uh, we'll be rolling dice and uh, picking short topics um, from a list and just kind of chatting about them. It's, it's, it's a grand experiment and we'll see how all that goes. So Bill, uh, do you, you want to talk a little bit about yourself? And Okay. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm Bill Ochter. I'm an archaeologist based in the, sort of the mid-Atlantic, um, based out of Baltimore, uh, Maryland. And um I'm in the CRM field, and uh, I do a lot of work on regulatory stuff, primarily uh, associated with like wireless projects and things like that. But um, I'm really active, or try to be active, uh, on social media through um, at ArcheoThoughts. And there is it's sort of like uh, an opportunity, a place for me to play around with different ideas. The idea of the thoughts behind it is that um, I was a philosophy minor in, in undergrad. And uh, so the idea of thoughts always come in, in the world of thoughts, always play a role. So like this week, um, I've got an itch to get back into the world of Dungeons and Dragons, something I played in high school um, during the, I guess now it's called second edition, advanced Dungeons and Dragons era. Um, but now I think it's up to fifth edition and it's a different world. It's a different game, but I enjoy the idea of sort of collaborative storytelling. Um, and I see that plays a, a lot of parallels between that and anthropology and archeology, span where you, you sort of gather people, you gather information and through all that, you, you create stories uh, of the past. So that, that's sort of how I, I tie all those things together. So not, not just the, treasure hunting bit no 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 it's not just treasure hunting um you could play i mean there are there are places for that of course i mean you could play your video games like your laura crofts and your uh, uncharted's um and you could do that in dungeons and dragons too but no no i mean I, I guess it's too much of the archaeologist in me it's it's about the context sure sure well and this is you know i didn't even think about it until you're just talking right now but um this all kind of plays into the whole archaeo gaming thing Oh yeah, very much so. I mean, there's, there's, I'm online following other uh, folks um, like Daniel Quang, uh, Curiosity and Focus, who are much deeper into sort of the world of tabletop gaming. Uh, and, and there's other, I mean, following a bunch of other folks who are, you know, active archaeologists who are using this as a, uh, as a disciplinary tool uh, to sort of further help uh, explain, create sort of public archaeology outreaches by using uh using the gaming format to sort of uh, explore a, a past world. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of really cool things going on in, in sort of the tabletop archaeo gaming world. And I'm just more of a fan at this point than anything else. Sure. Well, and, and like you say, it really does uh, seem to really have picked up. Uh, 
you know, I started, I uh, used to role play a lot, uh, you know, like starting with the basic set, the old red box and uh, when I was in junior high and, uh, and then like in high school, you know, moved to uh, advanced Dungeons and Dragons, AD&D in, in first edition and then second edition as an undergrad. And then start branching out and doing other things like uh, Cyberpunk 2020 in uh, grad school and, and stuff like that. And then the early aughts kind of rolled their own. Um, uh, but then you know, it's it's really time consuming, right? You know, so like if, if you're trying to do other stuff, it's, it's really hard to keep up. But um, it there does definitely seem to be a huge resurgence in the whole tabletop uh, role playing stuff. Um, which I think is pretty interesting. For those of us not quite familiar, uh, do you guys mind explaining a little bit more about Archeo Gaming and like in a general overview, um, not just like tabletop or if you, if you don't mind, like explain that to me much appreciated. Okay. Um, well, my view, I mean, this is really sort of the, the lay person. Uh, I'm the one who sort of reads the content that, that uh, the others are, are creating. Um, but the way I see Archeo Gaming is, um, well, I, I see it as sort of multiple. There's multiple le- levels. Like one, is, one level is using the tools of the archaeologist to explore created content, created world. So you would, say, play a video game. Uh, which had an immersive open world, and you would use the tools of archaeology, uh, data collection and analysis, um, to sort of explore that world. Um, but I also see another side, uh, sort of archaeogaming, as uh, sort of the almost exact opposite, where you use the tools of a game, uh, whether it's a video game or role-playing game, to sort of help further explore actual spaces. So you could use uh, a virtual world to explore a a Roman villa uh, reconstructed, or you could use tabletop role-playing game to recreate uh, battles um, and and so so forth like that. So that's, that's, you know, for me on the outside, that's sort of how I look at it. I'm I'm sure there's much more technical uh, definitions of it, but as a receiver of that of the of the work that they're doing that that's how i look at it cool that that answered my question okay so what we've uh, done for our uh, show notes is um we have a bunch of uh, short uh possible topics um we probably won't hit on all of them um but the idea is that it's uh structured like a random encounter table um the the good old adventurer standby for role playing games and uh, so Bill is going to roll some percentile dice and uh, we will um, do the uh, pick the corresponding topic and then just kind of go around the, the virtual table here and uh, talk about that topic for as long as we please. Um, how's that sound, guys? <laughs> OK, uh, let me uh, let me go ahead and roll the first die. Right on. So we have a nine, which brings up Dragon's Horde. Okay. Dragon's Horde. Let's talk about curation. <laughs> yeah. So it, I don't necessarily have any a good way to start off on this, um, except that, you know, what do you feel about the, uh, the state of curation now? Um, you know, there are a lot of issues with uh, space, uh, lack of space, um, and, and the fact that, you know, curation is often perceived as a dragon's horde. Like you have to get past the dragon to uh, get at it. So, um, Bill, I'm going to toss it straight back at you. So why don't you give it a start and toss your thoughts in? Okay. All right. Well, I mean, from the, uh, from the, the CRM perspective, curation is always sort of that elusive end piece. And depending on your project... Uh, whether you're working for a public uh, entity or you're working for a private firm, um, curation can either be an extremely diligent and important part of your project or the absolute afterthought that that is scrambled once all money has has, has drained out of a project. Um, and that sort of inconsistency I see is definitely a problem. Um, there's a talk and there's, and there's good there's good statutes out there uh, from state shippos and so forth regarding you know if you're going to do a project you have to have um, 
this is the, these are the curation standards if you're going to dig and so forth. There's even states, uh, I know like Arizona, will ask you specifically, you want to make sure before they issue you permits, um, how much money do you have so they can determine whether or not you'll have money to carry through the entire project, including curation. Um, but I see that as, as once again, sort of the general problem of CRM. It's inconsistent because it's 50 states plus territories in the District of Columbia, so there's 50 um, some odd rules. Uh, and different organizations and different companies uh, consider those things more important. I've been on projects where we've we delivered a final report, a phase three closing report, um, but curation hadn't been finished yet. And then all of a sudden we were out of money and we're scrambling to try to just get it down to the repositories uh, to get things going. So I, that inconsistency I see is as one of the major problems. Sure. And, uh, you know, be, beyond just the 50 states, right? Like we have all the provinces and uh, territories up here in Canada. It, uh, you know, but some, some of the problems, not just the inconsistencies, but like, you know, what happens to all this stuff? You know, what do we do with it? Um, that, 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 uh, kind of, you, you know, it, it, it's kind of like the end game, right? Like, you know, we get the stuff. The last thing we do is we stick it in storage. And then if we're lucky, maybe a grad student will look at the stuff, but how much of it's actually getting used or, uh, um, you know, uh, what happens to it? What's the end life? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right about that. I mean, from the curators I've actually talked to, they're the, you know, my, I was just sort of addressing sort of my concern from my seat, but I also have, you know, talked to other curators where um, their concern is, is one, they don't have this you know, sheer amount of space, especially in the United States where um, we collect a lot. Uh, we, 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 there's not, there's no real general idea of purging of collection. So if we're going to collect uh, nails, we got a bunch of nails. And sometimes there's some smart methods and other method times you, we're, we're going to send all those nails up to uh, the, the collections. Um, and you're also right about the idea of use. I mean, we, I've, where did I hear that? I've heard something recently, a discussion about the idea that, you know, maybe, maybe we dig too much. Uh, you know, we, we are all about, you know, creating a new kind. Con- I think it was a conversation I was, I was overhearing uh uh, concerning like uh, grad students and, and things like that, that we, we dig too much, uh, that it's all about creating the new shiny thing so that you can write your PhD and your dissertations and publish the book and publish the article. And that's easier to do with something brand new and shiny rather than say uh, an ana- reanalysis of, of, of another collection and so forth like that. So um, yeah, no, we're doing that. And, and then if you want to keep going, there's the whole digital uh, issue um, of having the resources to digitize these, uh, c- uh, c- you know, collections so that they are more accessible uh, to more people. I mean, if you want to do, say, a meta-analysis of all pottery in the Chesapeake, um, that is now beginning to happen, but it's slow and it requires money. Uh, and you you really can't do those things reasonably without sort of digitally, you know, archiving these things where it's not just physical locations. You have to take that data, upload it, create it in searchable content that talks to each other. Uh, this is also, I mean, if you run, now I'm getting a rambling point, but the, you know, this is, this is where like, you know, different states, once again, we're back to the problem of the different states because, you know, a collection in, in say Maryland cannot, will not necessarily talk to a collection in Ohio. Uh, and, and the idea, I mean, I know there's works uh, it was, it's, uh, right now because we're doing all this quick. I can't think of anybody's acronyms and I'm sure we can add them later. Um, but I know there are, are efforts being made uh, for digital archaeology uh, to sort of create those sort of cross state um, ideas of, of research so we can actually bring, bring about the larger analysis. Sure. Well, and in, in the most recent uh, advances in archaeological practice, um, uh, the, the most recent issue is all about uh, synthesis. Um, that that's like the big hurdle, right? Like you know, that's the next step. That's in the long, the end goal of all this. These uh, small things is that we bring them all together and synthesize them into uh, larger studies. But uh, there are a lot of you know uh, logistical and just you know practical 
hurdles to jump um, if, if we're going to be able to do, uh, do all that sort of stuff. Um, but uh, I, something you mentioned earlier, I want to kind of go back and touch on um, the, the notions that we're digging too much. Because uh, uh, something that was kind of put forward to me um, this past week, just as the conversation wasn't even like about this, was the notion that, you know, it's expected that grad students go out and dig a site because that's how it's basically the practical. That's how they learn to um, to, to, to dig, to, to run an excavation. Uh, I, I don't know that that's, you know, that kind of rubs up against, you know, the idea that like we're digging too much. Like if, if, you know, a grad project is designed to be like a practical skill based sort of thing, um, that it, it makes sense that it should kind of at least parallel what we do for CRM. On the other hand, that ends up with, you know, massive more and more, you know, collections. Yeah. I mean, to sort of split this up into two sort of, I guess, different separate areas is one, I'm not sure how much control we have in CRM about how much we dig. Um, obviously, most clients would prefer we wouldn't because excavation is quite expensive and that saves them money. Um, but in that sense, you know, the vast majority of archaeology is done in a sort of commercial sense. So I'm not sure we can really do much to reduce our digging. Um, and then to flip it around on the academic sort of side, uh, we'd actually discussed this a couple of years ago, um, like not the CRM, but I've discussed it with some other archaeologists, that we actually thought it was kind of a, you know, going through the training of a field school, it's kind of actually a really horrible thing to um, have your field school as your training aspect on live archaeology, as it were. Uh, one, as a student, it can be quite uh, nerve-wracking to sort of have that thing of, ooh, am I doing this right? Am I missing things? And then for very complex sites, uh, you know, you really do – digging and excavation is a skill – and there's things that you pick up over the years where you're able to see the soil change and you, know, you can see where part of it's uh, collapsed and backfilled and you can make sense of that stuff that you would never be able to do as an undergraduate. And so we were always talking about how you should actually just make a giant um, sand pit plate place um, where you could actually train people. But in a sense, you could, you could use – you could make different colored sand and, you know um, – use a post hole digger, dig it out, throw in a different color of sand and have someone, you know, excavate it that way. So they actually didn't, weren't practicing on live archeology. span um, and, and, you know, it'd get rid of some of those issues of, you know, when you're at a field school, if you find something important, all of a sudden, you know, the, whoever the supervisors are, or even the, the person in charge of the dig comes over and takes it away from you. And you actually don't get that chance to dig it um, because it is important. So, you know, I think, if you're talking about an academic way, there's probably better ways to do it than have people practice on live archaeology. But then, you know, part of the attraction for students is to actually go to sort of exotic locations and dig, you know, the actual archaeology. So, you know, it's a flip thing. But I think there were, would be ways about, you know, reducing that in academia. Uh, CRM, I don't know. I'm sure every client would love to, but there are certain cases I don't think we could get around it. Yeah, no, I mean, your, your idea of the uh, test pits just made me think of an analogy uh, of the idea of like in, in medical school, you know, a surgeon to become a surgeon needs to cut bodies. Uh, and so, you know, the idea of a, of a cadaver, which is sort of a deceased person. So it's a it's a situation where you, you're digging, but it's not really you're not really doing harm. Um, but I also know there's there's more virtual reality is it, becoming a bigger thing. But, you know, these are all things down the road, the idea of a test pit would require planning time and money. Uh, you know, so a, a department would have to commit, uh, to, to those types of things. So there's always a, always a balance. Sometimes it's cheaper. I mean, in the world of CRM, uh, I know this is, it's cheaper just sometimes just to give some people some shovels and send them out in the field rather than some of the, you know, non-obtrusive, uh, remote sensing methods we have, uh, to detect sites and, and, and analyze them. 
and so forth like that. But it's it's definitely an interesting dilemma. Sure. And, you know, coming from, you know, I used to work in a military setting and, and like the military is, uses all sorts of different simulations, at, you know, as for training, right? You know, I mean, you want it to be as realistic as possible, but clearly they're not going out and, and fighting. In, in some cases, you're compartmentalizing skills and focusing on, you know, individual skill sets, and then you're bringing it all together and all that sort of thing. So I've kind of always wondered, why are we doing like, like real excavation for field school rather than, you know, some sort of simulated skills learning process. But um, we are out of time for this segment. So we will um, go to a break and come back and probably pick a new uh, random encounter. We'll be back in a few. Network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our online store and access to show hosts on a members only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arc podnet.com slash members. Welcome back to the archaeology, the CRM archaeology podcast. I can't remember the name of our own show. Jeez. Um, we are uh, going through a uh, random encounter table and coming up with uh, topics and giving a brief uh, discussion about those uh, topics. Bill Ochler is uh, manning the dice. So if you want to pick the next topic. Okay, here we go for the next topic. We have a 10. I'm rolling high today. And that would be Sunset. Sunset. What's Sunset? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I believe Sunset's kind of the end game. Um, Most of our, uh, you know, like, legal documents are... uh, Memorandum of understanding and programmatic agreements and and all of these things have, um, you know, what we call sunset clauses. The end of things is not necessarily something we tend to think about. Like, you know, like um, when when we're designing new products, we're not necessarily thinking about the end of life. Like, how how do we remove these things short of like disposing of it in, in a landfill or something like that, or and which eventually gets found by us. And, and put in the uh, curational facility. So I guess we're kind of taking these topics backwards. You know, so I guess there's two ways we could take this topic. Um, one is how do we as archaeologists deal with the idea of preservation, of preserving things in place? Um, the other topic is how do we get out? But that, you know, when you do a, um, a business plan, you tend to have some sort of like a plan of like how, how do you – close up your business? How do you get out of your business? Do you sell it? Do you, you know, just wind it down? That That's part of a business plan. So uh, I will uh, throw this on you guys. Um, you know, you can take either one of those and run with it. Uh, what do you think? How, what's, how do we, what's our end game? What's our sunset? <laughs> Silence. Jeez. Um, a tough one. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll jump in and, and take that sort of that last one. I, I mean, just riffing off of your like, you know, how do you how do you get out and sort of selling off your company and stuff like that? I mean, it's a bit complicated in that most people in CRM are not going to actually have that option. I'd say that the majority of people are looking at a sort of normal retirement, um, normal, and no one can see this because it's all audio, but I'm doing, you know, air quotes right now. Um, in the sense, I think most people's plans are just hoping they have either some sort of 401k or retirement of some sort or social security or the equivalent of that. So in, in the UK, that's national insurance. Um, basically, you know, a state provided pension. I, I don't, I don't know. Do you guys have different plans to, to leave? I think most people aren't in the sort of, um, in the view of passing off 
their company and their work because most people don't have a company. I would, I would think uh, probably for most people, leaving archaeology is probably going to be something outside of their control, um, whether it's the end of a project or an end of a term with, with, with a company or an end, or a change in, in, in the regulatory uh, climate, uh, which, which reduces the need uh, for that. A lot of this is, is out of our control. Um, but it did make me think of the idea that for a lot of, especially in a CRM world, um, a lot of us are more of like it's it's project based. Um, so it's it's not realistically like a, like other types of careers um, where you know we are working from project to project to project. So that in some ways we start work, we do work, and our work is finished hundreds of times over the course of our career. It just so happens, kind of like life, uh, one time when it ends, it's for real this time. Um, and sometimes we can plan for it and sometimes we can't. Um, so I'm, I'm starting to think of like, you know, how do construction managers, because this is sort of within a CRM world, a, a, a sort of a parallel track in terms of they get projects, they have to manage those projects. There's lots of moving pieces. But eventually those projects are, are done. The building is built. We have finished excavating the site. Uh, we've delivered the final report and, and sent the artifacts to collections. That is the that is when the building is nice and shiny and pretty, but we walk away and we're not involved in the actual use of it, of it afterwards. So um, it, it is an interesting dilemma, um, I, but I think it's not it's not necessarily unique. Uh, to the world of archaeology in terms of like archaeologists as, a, as career professionals. Um, other people who work project by project, contract by contract, um, sort of all have to, all have this sort of problem. It's the, it's the gig economy. Yeah. Um, but there is a certain point where, you know, like you say, you know, we, we go out there and we do it and then we do another project and then we do another project. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we get older, right? Like that eventually there's going to be a point where um, you know, even if we wanted to, you know, maybe there's a point where we can't physically do it anymore. Um, maybe, maybe there's a point where like you're kind of forced out. Um, how do we, you know, like how, how do you, I, I guess the, the, the point is like, how do we plan for that sort of thing? Like, you know, shouldn't we have some sort of exit strategy knowing that, there eventually at some point, and, and maybe it's going to be this year, maybe it's, maybe it's going to be 20 years from now, that is essentially at some point, by our choice or not by our choice, you know, we're going to have to get out of the game. Well, since we're doing this sort of off the cuff, I, the only thing I can really lean back on is sort of my own experience. So sure. about seven years ago, um, I, I sort of started getting into the CRM um, telecommunications mostly so i'm doing a lot of shovel tests i'm digging a lot um but i knew you know i I got into archaeology sort of late i got into archaeology in my late 30s um so by the time 40 hit um the pain sort of began so i I knew this wasn't going to cut it I, i couldn't dig holes for the rest of my life um so that was a, one of the driving forces behind going to, to grad school. And when I went to grad school, I chose history uh, as for my master's uh, rather than anthropology um, because it would sort of give me another avenue to sort of stay within this world of CRM um, because I'm always I'm one of the ones who think of the three-field CRM of archaeology, um, architectural history, and, hist- and history as being all part of CRM. Um, so it gives me avenues to sort of stay in the office and, and do that or, or do the arch- a small architectural survey. Uh, I can't do full ones, but I can do tiny ones. Um, get more involved in things like project management where I'm uh, I'm subbing, I'm, I'm the manager who's subbing out uh, work to archaeologists who are going out in the field and doing the work or I'm more involved in the NEPA process where I'm also looking at natural resources and putting together the final sort of category exclusion documentation uh, needed for, for telecommunications work. So I began putting out feelers in, in different directions uh, so that I would have other alternatives. One, it's just a good career move. Uh, if you're flexible and you are you have a diverse skill set, 
um, if one thing ends, you can then jump leap to something else. Um, but also from a practical point of view, uh, we were you were talking about the aches and pains, and my shoulder started hurting, and I could feel the thing in my knee, and you know all those little creeping pains that that that, that we we all get over the years. Um, sure. So, yeah, um, I think the, the real key is to uh, we need to, you know, you need to be diversified. I mean, we don't have in CRM, you don't have the luxury of being a single topic specialist. Um, you have to be flexible because each project's different. Each employer's different. Yeah. And actually, I think it's, it's a good topic to be discussing because I actually know several uh, several archaeologists who are trying to get out, but actually haven't. Um, figured out how to do that and that, and you know they're not and you know they're in the 30s and 40s or maybe pushing 50 um but they're not actually archaeology is not what they want to do anymore um and they want to get out but they actually are kind of stuck basically in archaeology jobs because they haven't actually figured a way out um i do wonder if if there would be room in archaeology to have a course or a discussion or a paper or a workshop or a, you know, maybe even a full podcast that we devoted to how does one plan to leave, um, you know, even just switch careers and not necessarily at the end of their career when, you know, your knees are giving out and you're, you're being sort of pushed out. But what if people, you know, instead of a push, what if it's more of a pull, what if they want to go change to something else? Um, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of any sort of guidance or even a presentation. Like I, I couldn't think of like a YouTube video to send someone to. I couldn't think of a blog post, a podcast. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you guys have seen something, but I can't think of a single resource that we provide for people on how to, you know, sort of move your way out of archaeology if that's the way you want to go. No, I, I, I can't think of anything. Um, no, I can't think, nope. think of anything. I can't think of anything either. It makes me think of sort of the the, the grad school problem of the professor who's going to convince you that you're going to go tenure track when there are no tenure track positions. Um, it's a sort of the sure. same idea, you know. Archaeologists like to talk about the continuation of archaeology, and we don't have this discussion of like it's not going to be for everyone. It's not going to be forever. Uh, so, what are the other paths? So, no, that's something I think is is, is much needed. Yeah, that might be something to follow up on later. But uh, we're kind of out of time for this topic. Shall we move on to the next one? Okay, let's see what the dice give us this time. We have a five, which is sequestered monks. Yeah, th hmm. th this one's going to be uh, pretty similar to the Dragon's Horde, I think. Uh, the uh, the original question, because I actually have like a, a translation sheet here when I was just kind of writing down topic, topics, uh, published materials uh, are, are, you know, like the the academic publishing institution. It, it's largely uh, inaccessible to a lot of us in CRM. Um, you know, there, there are ways of getting around it. You can ask the authors. You can, uh, you know, maybe... If you're lucky, there's a local uh, university and you can have a short uh, like citizen checkout for those types of things, you know, but, but generally, um, you know, the way that we're brought up in the academy is that you, you basically, if you're doing research on a topic, you look at everything that was written about that topic or as much as you can. Um, but that's, you know, becomes like that, you know, hard to do from a cost perspective or, you know, even a time perspective for CRM. So along those lines, you know, if, if there's an academic library, you know, a body of um, published material for given topics and we can't access it, you know, what do we do? Does it actually exist? Do we ignore it? What do we do? It doesn't exist. Um, I, I, I take a somewhat controversial take on this because uh, I also help run a project, Open Access Archaeology which is the idea that um, basically, I think, Stephen, you've, you've touched on this and articulated the problem really well, is people write stuff and they put it into journals and they assume that's published. And then they'll, they'll come back and they'll say things like, oh, well, you know, it's such a high level that even if we made it free, the public wouldn't be able to understand it. So why does it matter? Everyone who matters accesses it. But, you know, 
depending on the country, two thirds to 90% of all archaeologists work outside of academia and don't have access to a library with sort of online access or even hard copy or anything like that to most of the resources. Um, And, uh, you know, you're sort of taught in school that you should always cite everyone's research and give them credit and stuff. Um, But I think it gives a sort of perverse incentive because I've, I've read papers where people have cited stuff and I can tell that they've cited the abstract and never actually read the paper because it's behind a paywall. Um, and so, you know, having access to that paper, I can be like, no, that's not at all what that paper said. Um, but I think it, it creates bad science. So, it, you know, there's a, a big push for everyone to always cite all the relevant literature. But if no one can read it, um, have, have we even published it? Or are we just basically glorified looters? So in the sense of, you know, what we do to separate ourselves from looters is we say it's not for personal gain, even though we're being paid for it. And we say we record the stuff so that other people can use the information. But recording in itself, I don't think is actually worth, you know, if you don't make it available, you haven't recorded, you've recorded it in a sense of it's somewhere, but you haven't published it. You haven't made it available to the wider public or even other archaeologists. So in a sense, you're basically a looter. You've dug up, you know, whatever it is, you've destroyed the context. And if no one accesses it, you know, what was the point? Though I have pretty extreme views on this. So maybe you guys are a little more mild mannered. No, I mean, what you brought up uh, made me think of something that I always sort of think about while I'm out there digging holes and writing reports uh, and things like that is like, how much am I just a technician, just a sort of like, glorified skilled professional who provides a a service uh, it's a report that allows someone to move the next step in the, in the regulatory process and how much am i an actual scientist who's actually or historian who's who's creating information to sort of help the general knowledge of of, of both scientific and our historical understanding of the past and that is definitely like, you know, you want to talk about something that like, you know, creeps on me and makes me sweat at night about the, the profession is, you know, I, I have doubts sometimes about, you know, are we actually doing any good or are we just a, a hired shovel uh, to, to move through a process um, because of things like our reports uh, on, on the CRM side, um, they, they go into state repositories and some cases never get, I'm, I'm thinking, because I, I spent a lot of time in the world of tele- telecommunications, um, there are certain states where we will file sort of technical short form reports, which are smaller than a phase one uh, report. And those don't even get entered into the library uh, of the uh, of the, sh- the SHPO office so that others can't, other, even other professionals uh, don't have access to the work we did. Now, there are other states that are better than that, and, and I've seen where, the, you know, they'll record our stuff. So, even so, okay, I'm going to side tangent now, but we, there's a problem where, say you're working on a, on a tower site, and you're, this is the third time they've decided to build something there, and, and something's come up. Uh, in certain states, you will conduct archaeology on that same place three different times without any knowledge of those who preceded you on there. But and I, and I see this as translating out to exactly the problem you're talking about, um, because if we don't have access to the other works that other people have done, sometimes we're going to try to recreate those things and reinvent the wheel uh, where someone else has probably done as good a job or if not a better job. Uh, at that, and we can then spend our times doing what science should be doing, and that's standing on the shoulders uh, of the past to sort of move us forward, rather than being in sort of a cycle of just re- recreating uh, the same past over and over again. Sure, um, and and to go back uh, what you were talking about, like what are we? You know, what's our role in all this? Um, I I kind of have like. Uh, two different mental models and it's kind of like the uh, um, the insider and, and the outsider perspectives that, uh, you know, what we are in, in or the way that we kind of conceive of ourselves are more like physicians. You know, we're not necessarily doing research, but we're going out there, we're looking at symptoms, we're diagnosing things, and then maybe 
depending on what comes back, you know, we'll see like a research opportunity, um, you know, for, as, as kind of a side thing. Um, but really what the clients think of us, we are just really slow utility locators. You know, all they really want to know is, you know, can I put my project there or do I need to move it? You know, where can I dig? You know, what, what can I do? You know, what will you guys let us do based on what's already there? And, and that's exactly the attitude that we have when we're dealing with utility locators. It's like, uh, can I, can I dig here? Cause I really want to dig here. Um, and, and that is, you know, if, if you have like, like in your mind, like you want to be, do research and stuff like that, that's kind of, or it could be, I suppose, demoralizing, um, that, you know, really, really it's like, you know, we just go out there and we provide a service. Anyway, it is time for the next break. Um, we will start up for the third segment with a whole new topic. Hey there, podcast listeners. I'm the Archaeology Podcast Network computer and server system, and I'm here to tell you about our newest supporter, WildNote. I know databases and computers, of course, and I know a thing or two about data security. WildNote is an Apple and Android-based digital field recording system that will help you produce quality data that are born digital. You can be sure that your data will be secure in the WildNote system as you collect it, review it, and export it as PDFs spreadsheet files, or whatever you need. So, check out the 30-day free trial at www.wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your 30-day free trial. Now back to my ones and zeros. Hashtag binary humor. Welcome back. We are uh, selecting, randomly selecting a bunch of short uh, topics and briefly discussing each one of them. Bill, do you want to roll the dice and see what we get for the next one? Okie dokie, let me go ahead and roll the dice. I've realized I've not been putting a, a role-playing flare on any of this stuff yet, so let's see what this orb of enchantment will uh, <laughs> tell us next. All right. Through the eyes of the enchantment, I am seeing a sh shadowy figure of what may be a geomancer. The geomancer. Ah, spatial data. Let's talk about spatial data. You know, we're out there now, uh, you know, like more and more, uh, we're incorporating GIS and uh, GPS and, and uh, increasing the accuracy of what, what we're doing. How does that play in with, you know, the maps of past work or stuff like that? So basically, you know, what are you guys doing for spatial data? Um, how, how are you preserving it? How are you working with it? How are you creating it? What are you doing for workflows? Um, I'm going to toss this straight to Bill um, so you don't get a lot of time to think. Well, th thank you for that. But, uh, yeah, no worries. <laughs> but uh, luckily for me, um, once again, because I play mostly in the world of telecommunications, uh, my actual interaction with, with, with uh, uh, geospatial information is uh, actually very limited. Um, it's typically because my sites are 100 by 100 foot uh, squares with maybe – a 20 foot wide by 300 foot access road. So your, your spatial information is actually very tiny and so forth. So uh, a lot of it is sort of just creating general maps um, for um, both the client and, and regulators uh, to sort of see. So, you know, you, you got your geo, you got your uh, Google earths. Um, you can do your different layers of both the, the satellite views and the, uh, the terrain maps to sort of get an, an idea. Um, actually, where I spend most of my time uh, with uh, uh, this type of uh, data is uh, sort of incorporating uh, historic maps uh, and historic aerials in, into a project area. Um, I, I like the tools that you can use in, in both like Google Earth and um, I'm beginning to sort of get my head around QGIS, um, but with, you know, where you can like put in plugins and I can, you know, georeference quad maps from 1890 and sort of get a general feel uh, for where my site is. And it helps, what it really helps for me is it's a time-saving tool, uh, geospatial information. Instead of trying to hunt for maps and then trying to reconcile where they are in space compared to what I have, I can pull up single source information, put in my coordinates, uh, and then see 100, 150 years uh, worth of maps 
uh, sort of roughly geo-referenced. Thankfully, my work is a little more forgiving, so roughly it, it is sort of good enough. Uh, so that I can see, was there a road there that isn't there anymore? Does someone mark a, a settlement that is, is, wasn't present when I was out there in the field? And it sort of gives me those uh, tools to sort of broaden the, the conversation because what I do is very compact. Um, so you need to say a lot in a very short amount of time. Um, so I, I have loved the idea that I can use these sort of geo-reference tools uh, to tell stories that I wouldn't, we, I wouldn't have bothered uh, looking at historic maps ten years ago, uh, in, in the same way, uh, because it would have taken days uh, of work to do that. Where now I can spend an hour and, and tell a, a, a whole historic aerial map narrative about a single place uh, with that. So that's 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 sort of where I see. I got a cop out on that. Well, I would think that you also have. Um you know, and, and this is kind of squeezing it into the whole spatial realm, but, you know, dealing with things like uh, visual analysis. I mean, visual impact, I, I presume, is still a big thing for towers. I mean, back in the 90s, um, you know, I never really did this, but there were a lot of like the, the balloon studies, right, where you uh, um, put a balloon up and then drive around um, to all the historic bars and see if you could see it from, you know, the bar. And, uh you know, to gauge visual impact. Um, oh, you're right. You're right about that. Yeah. Do um, you, so yeah, the, the visual, you made me think of it. Okay. That's the other side of it, I guess. Um, view shed analysis, uh, balloon test, um, visual um, area potential effects uh, analysis. Um, actually, you're, you're getting on my uh, topic for uh, next weekend's uh, Mid-Atlantic Archaeology Conference, which may come out. It'll be the weekend of St. Patrick's Day, which may probably is going to be after this has uh, been published. So check out Archeo Thoughts on Twitter, and hopefully I'll have my poster up there by then. Um, but no, this is this is a very uh, – Cool. Uh, yes, that is a very – also a, a sort of a, a spatial uh, analysis. It's extremely important, and especially with something as – something like that where knowing it's, – it's a good tool because – Knowing if something is visible is just one, it's probably the first step uh, of your overall analysis. Then you go through your whole step of does it alter what makes that place significant, which is a whole different analysis. Um, but your first step is the visual. Uh, is it going to be visible from that place is, is definitely your first question or first answer. Sure. Um, you know, and, you know, given that you've worked in the, in the private sector a lot, um, I, you know, when I think about like management, I, I think in terms of like spatial databases and maintaining records of, you know, like, you know, the, basically the past work. So you can uh, reference it and maybe get a little bit of that synthesis going and, and stuff like that. And you, you realize that this is more like, you know, tying into what Shippos and state ar- state archaeologists and, um, you know, provincial archaeologists you know tend to do it as like land managers but I, I would think that being able to tie into databases would be a um kind of a useful thing oh, definitely definitely would be or definitely is uh doug you got any input on this help us deal with the geomancer yeah um well well i guess i can just go with my most recent experiences um pretty pumped about the new release of QGIS, QGIS 3. Um, so that's quite, well, it's been almost two years since they've done a, a new version of QGIS. They uh, sort of froze development and put everything into the next version. So um, that's a really big step up. Um, and for those who are you know, listening, maybe not familiar, QGIS is a software platform um, to do GIS, it's the, uh, I mean, there's a couple of open source ones, but I'd say it's probably the biggest open source one, uh, the most popular. So a lot of archaeologists tend to use it because, well, it's free. So, um, you don't have to spend a small fortune on things like ArcGIS. Um, so, uh, pretty pumped about that. And then I guess my other sort of, what I'm working on now that involves, uh, geodata is um, I'm involved in this project over here in the UK to create a platform for research frameworks. 
so research frameworks are essentially you get together everyone in the room, you know, the good and the great about a certain topic, like, I don't know, Neolithic or, you know, lithics or pottery or something like that. And you ask, okay, so what, what's the information we know and what are the questions, the big questions we should be asking for the next, you know, five, 10 years. And sometimes those questions are used by CRM, commercial archaeologists, to drive their research questions um, for, you know, investigations and things like that. So we're building this digital platform um, to sort of handle that uh, interaction for people to put that those research frameworks up. And of course, a big part of archaeology is geodata. So, you know, where was this site um, and, you know, what's its relation to, and then also, you know, just even the research framework. So different regions will have their own research framework that's specific to that. So Scotland will have its own one. Actually, I'll have a bunch, so like the Southeast, the Southwest. Um, Argyle and Butte has its own one. Um, and then, you know, it, it gets that. So right now I'm in the fun sort of aspect of trying to build tools that people can use to query questions about research by geographic region and aspects like that, and maybe go deeper into sites and stuff. So that's my sort of experience right now with uh, geodata or geography or um, general spatial data, however you want to call it. Oh, cool. Um, Time's up for that one. So... Let's see what our final uh, encounter is. Bill? All righty. So the orb seems to have one more mystery to give us. By which I'm going to re-roll that because it's the same mystery we just talked about. <laughs> Ooh. Now this is an appropriate end one. Actually, I don't know how you, how you spelled it out, but... There's a monster lurking. Uh-oh. It is the Gorgon. I knew we were going to get that one. This, this one, um, we actually kind of talked about uh, a little bit. Because um, it is, uh, again, it's it's kind of the permanence thing. That, uh, so maybe, maybe we want to skip it. Well, I mean, I can go into it. I mean, I think we, before we started recording, we were talking about uh, sort of my my recent uh, history, and uh, this might be actually the, the point to sort of talk about that. Sure. Um, so this week, um, much like uh, a lot of archaeologists will find out, uh, well, not find out, but happen to them over the course of their, their career, uh, this week I was laid off from my current position. Um, so now I find myself as a sort of mid-career uh, archaeologist um, who is now back on the job hunt and um, sort of tied into everything we've else we've been talking about today. Um, it's, it's a slightly different uh, point of view. It's, it's, not, it's not like a field technician, even though I might have to do some field technician work uh, in the short term to make things, uh, to make things match, but... This career search is more is definitely more of the formal career search. It's the filling out resumes and doing the LinkedIn profiles and and getting some networking done with prior for, for other for other contacts to try to find uh, openings and potentials or maybe there's an insight with somebody you know at another company. Um, you know, so it's both within private sector and public sector and even nonprofits sort of exploring uh, what are the avenues given my skill set uh, that I can next find uh, someplace that's open. Um, also, on, uh, slightly different than other uh, times in one's career, I find myself sort of tied geographically. You know, I'm mid-career now. I've made roots, a house, a family, and so forth. So, um, packing up and going to the next open project in the Great Basin um, isn't really an option uh, for me uh, because I'm here on the East Coast. So those are all sort of the, the dilemmas and, and things that are thrown out there right now for me as I'm sort of stepping into this world where, and, and it's been, I've been sort of fortunate. I've not been laid off from a position since 2002. I've had to quit a few. 
Um, but this is sort of the, for the first time in a long time that I've sort of been thrusted unexpectedly uh, back onto the job market. Sure. Um, by, by the time anybody's listening to this, um, I'm going to be on a short-term layoff as well. Um, so, you know, I have expectations that I'm going to be going back to my job after, once uh, spring starts thawing out a little bit more um, and the work picks up. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of very aware of, of these topics that you're talking about because I'm in my mid-40s and, you know, yeah, it's, it's you know, I can't just... Uh, you know, there, there's been some um, pretty nice uh, job postings from, you know, down in the southern U.S. And it's like, oh, that sounds like a cool job, but, you know, I can't move down there for these. Um, I'm pretty much here. And, you know, what are the options? You know, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with, you know, the various firms that, you know, work in this area and, and you know, are these places that I want to work for. Um, and if I do work for them, you know, what are you know, future possibilities, you know, what, what are they going to turn into as far as advancement or um, something like that, that, you know, these are, you know, considerations or to go back to, you know, the sunset thing, you know, is this the signal that it's time to get out? And if so, you know, how do you even do that? Uh, Doug? Yeah. I'm, I'm a bit of a interesting crossroads as well. Um, so uh, being based in Scotland, but not being a British citizen, I have to be on visas. Um, and so I've, I've managed to string that out for a really long time. Um, and I have my current employer who sponsors me. Um, but essentially that means is my, my ability to stay in this country and my wife's ability to stay is based on me being able to hold this job. Um, and we've, Part of it is still funded for another half of it's funded for another two years, um, but the other half of it is basically. Um, well, we were supposed to have heard at the end of February if we were getting funding, and that's now been pushed back to like the fifteenth um, of March, and probably will get pushed back again. But our funding runs out at the end of March, um, so. If I if I if that funding runs out, my monthly pay goes below the, the threshold. I lose my visa and um, basically get kicked out of the country. I, it'll be a bit interesting because it's been almost nine years since I've I've been working in the U.S. So um, going back there would basically mean uh, starting over again. So I don't have BLM permits or anything like that. I I mean I have enough. Uh, days and stuff I could probably quite quickly pick up some in New Mexico um, is I'm assuming that there's not like a time limit on that and it has uh, I'd have to check on that but basically uh, if that happened my career as it were would pretty much for the most part end and I'd have to start over from scratch um, at which point it's it's one of those things of do I really want to go back to you know um, very bottom field tech wages, um, you know, not, not having permanent contracts or anything like that. Um, you know, sometimes weekly week to week, or is that where I decide, you know, archeology span is not for me and I move out. So yeah, kind of actually in a fairly similar, uh, position as you guys, though a bit different. This, this really is turning into the, a monster of a topic. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, we're, we're not doing very well against the Gorgon this this time. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, do you guys have any other uh, thoughts on this topic? Well, I mean, some of the thoughts are, are sort of the basic thoughts that sort of anyone in, in their in their career should to think about um, in preparation for the uh, these types of inevitabilities. Um, it's the creating a savings so that you have a few months of buffer um, after a layoff because um, while depending on the season, uh, it might be easier easier or not to do a short-term uh, tech position, uh, something like a project manager or a PI 
um, it's going to take much longer. Um, Those positions don't come up as often. Um, When they do the vetting process, the interview, the hiring process, it it, it takes much longer to do. If you're going to look into sort of governmental positions, that process takes even longer than that. Um, So there's sort of like short, medium and long term strategies you sort of have to have uh, with that. Your short term is, you know, covering your, you know, making sure you can cover your bills for the time that that you're uh, unemployed. The medium term is maybe looking for a position that will help fill a gap, uh, maybe take on a project or two, uh, while the long goal is just to get back into something uh, with a little more permanence uh, to that. But you kind of need those plans. I mean, and and you guys have talked about this plenty of times regarding uh, field technicians and sort of the seasonal uh, ups and downs and the preparations needed for that. Um, you get that never stops. That, that that's why I guess one of the lessons from here is that 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 thing that never stops. You always have to be prepared uh, for some sort of inevitable, uh, un, unexpected uh, uh, turbulence to your to your job and career, and uh, because the gorgon can come out from anywhere. Well, I think uh, that that about does it for time. So. Let's uh, wrap that up and uh, do our goodbyes. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned in the show are in the show notes for this podcast, as well as the, uh, hopefully, a photo of the uh, random encounters table. And these can be found at www.artpodnet.com forward slash CRM Art Podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or email Chris at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at www.artpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for archaeologists everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks particularly for Bill Octor for joining us at the last second. And thanks also to the listeners for tuning in. We'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Goodbye. And uh, wait. Bye. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.